Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. If you look at a lot of great executives, uh, they're Teflon. They somehow have a way of navigating through all this stuff. And for years, you know, the strat planning department at Disney would tell me that, no, it was still a good decision that, you know, CSI was, you know, it was good that we gave it away. And, you know, the deficit was too high. I mean, people, people, you know, it, this is Hollywood. You know, if there's a success, everybody stands up. And if there's a huge failure or a giant mistake like that, people... They walk away and they point fingers, and, and that's really what happened. All right, welcome back to Industry Standard. It's me, Barry Katz. Thank you so much for all the emails and tweets and Facebook messages. You guys are amazing. We we couldn't be doing this without you, and it's it's a it's an honor to know that we provided a niche that hopefully you guys feel uh, has helped you. Um, these uh, these interviews have been amazing, and today I I promise you, today is gonna f you guys up. It's gonna be a groundbreaking show. So my guest today, Steve McPherson, is the former president and chairman of the ABC TV Entertainment Group. He is credited with orchestrating one of the most dramatic turnarounds in television history. He transformed ABC with iconic shows like Lost, Desperate Housewives, Grey's Anatomy, Dancing with the Stars, and of course, The Motherlode, Modern Family. Throughout his 25-year entertainment career, he's held positions at incredible companies like Whit Thomas Harris, uh, Fox Broadcasting Company, ABC Productions, NBC, and the Walt Disney Company. He started his career by developing and launching the CSI franchise and then went on to bring to the small screen all the shows that I mentioned above, including others like The Amazing Race, Scrubs, Monk. He's regarded as one of the most influential programmers in television history in my mind. He's an incredible visionary. He's been awarded over seven Emmy Awards and won Best Show, get this, in comedy, drama, animation, and reality separately. 
Recently, he launched his own company called Wonder Monkey TV. I wonder what the second choice was for the name. Partnership with Lionsgate, and he has over 20 projects set up at outlets ranging from CBS, Fox, Stars, HBO, FX, Amazon, and Xbox. What a shocker. He has a bunch of other ventures as well that we'll probably might have time to talk about, like McPherson Global Ventures, Promise Winery, The Original Moonshine, and Pure Pack, yeah. a fitness supplemental drink. But for the most part, we know him and we love him as the man who brought us all these shows. Please welcome my guest today, Steve McPherson. Thanks for having me, Bear. It's great to see you. Oh, this yeah, is I haven't unbelievable. seen you in a couple of years, I think. Yeah. I know. You look so young. <laughs> oh, I don't know, man. I'm feeling old as, uh, lately. I was just spending a long weekend with my girls, so it was like, you know, they keep you they keep you young, but they run you ragged. Two young girls, six and eight, out in the, by the beach, my wife and I. So Yeah, we, we do too. I have two boys, uh, uh, eight and nine, although they look like girls. Their <laughs> hair is down their head. Your hair is like spiked. It's like I feel like I could run my hand through your hair. It's my looking hands a little military today, I it's think. Very, it's it's, it's very got like the flat top look. They it's went a little done. short on this, this cut, I think. But you look so happy. This is what sometimes scares me about like meeting people who who are not in the job that they were that was incredibly stressful. And I see them after they're out of the job, and literally it's like they just got out one of, out one, of one of those meditation tanks, and they're like, just you look so like relaxed and, and, and like you're actually enjoying your life. And when I used to see you before, it was like you were Atlas. You had the weight of the world on your shoulders. No, I mean, listen, I, I'm lucky. You know, I, one of those guys who was able to step away and get perspective. And, you know, I was a type A kind of guy and executive and spent 25 years climbing the ladder. And a lot of times you don't really look at what the ladder is. And so some of those jobs, while, you know, power and money are certainly not something that, you know, is unattractive. Um, just the stress of those jobs and the, and you end up, you know, I got into this business to be on the creative side and you get farther and farther away from that, the higher you climb. So I, I feel great. I feel like I'm, you know, one of the lucky guys out here. It's, it's really great. You are one of the lucky guys, but you're also, you know, it's not all about luck and we're going to talk about that because it takes a lot of navigation, takes a lot of skill. And because what's amazing is that you realize what you probably don't realize as much unless you sit back uh, in a dark room is that <clears throat> there's a lot of people who you started with in your first entertainment jobs and all throughout the jobs that you had getting to be the president and chairman of ABC and all that, the production and the network, a lot of guys didn't make it. A lot of guys went away. A lot of guys went home, but you never went home. You figure out a way to navigate and that's what's so amazing about your journey is that you're in a situation in every job you had in those 25 years on the way up where no one wanted you to win <laughs> even though they were smiling they gave you hugs they were like hey steve great job this not one person in those offices wanted you to rise and that's one of the things that our audience should understand is that wherever you are, whatever office you're in, whatever, I don't care if you're at McDonald's and flipping burgers or if you're in a law firm and your name isn't on the door yet or if you're doing a residency at a hospital, no one wants to see you get bigger and more successful than them. 
No, it's, I mean, Brandon Tartikoff, I think, had it best when he said they're beggars and choosers, you know, and just by the nature of those positions, you know, when you're a chooser, you're saying no 1,500 times a year and you're saying yes 10. So by the nature of it, you're just, people are rooting against you because it's hard. It's hard to be a seller and come in and constantly being rejected, et cetera, and, and still keep your, you know, your oomph about you and keep going back for it. Absolutely. So like I like to do here, I like to go back way, way, way back right, right. to about a month or a year before you ever had any idea of being in the entertainment business. Where were you? Where'd you grow up? Was it a rough time? And what, what was the impetus to getting in the business? I, uh, yeah, I was in Princeton, New Jersey. I was working for um, a Wall Street firm called Commodities Corporation because um, I had graduated from Cornell in the 80s, and I was a political science major, and it was a theater arts minor, and everyone was like, what you do is you go to Wall Street, you make money. That's what we do here at the Ivy League schools, and that's what it's the 80s, and you know, greed is good. Um, so I went to Wall Street, uh, and, I, and I found myself about, about two to three years into that, and I ended up spending four and a half years in, uh, in that job, but I just found it very empty. It was, you know, you work all year long and at the end of the year, they give you a number and you either made a number or you lost a number. And there was nothing created. Um, you were making, you know, mostly wealthy people wealthier uh, or you're losing their money and then they hate you. Um, and so I, you know, had one of those kind of classic, I was dating a girl, um, Wendy Wheeler, who like broke my heart and, uh, so I was sitting there in a job that I hated, my love of my life at that point, I thought had, you know, had left me. And, you know, I had this theater uh, interest um, where I'd done directing and some acting and writing. And, and I had one friend out here, Kevin Riley, actually, who at that point was probably a production assistant or something. Yeah, and he was at the time, he was a, I don't know if he was a production assistant at that time, but he was uh I think his first job was working for Brandon Tartikoff. Yes, he eventually got that, but he started in like publicity and product placement. I remember he was like trying to get, you know, the brand of toilet paper in the like appropriate show or whatever. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, he was a great friend. I went to college with him. He's a fraternity brother. And I literally remember him calling up and saying, come on out. You'll get a job. It'll be no problem. It's going to be fantastic. Just get out here. And I, Moved across the country. I flew to, uh, actually, to Davis, California. I knew a friend there, bought a car, drove down to L.A., and I was promptly out of work for about nine months. <laughs> and I remember, I was like, Kevin, I thought it was going to be, and he was like, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But um, And then he eventually, uh, my first job was actually at Witt Thomas, like you mentioned, and I was a PA slash personal slave. Now tell me the shows that were on the air that were big juggernaut hits for Whit Thomas during the time when you came there. Well, they were they were killing it. They had uh, Benson, Golden Girls, Empty Nest, and then some shows that are a little bit less known, but like Whoops, if you remember that, uh, Nurses. Um, what else did they have going when they were there? Uh, well, they had just done Dead Poet Society, the movie. It was their first movie, correct? Yeah, yeah, and they were so they they literally occupied the entire Renmar Studios, and which was amazing at the time. I'll never forget because uh, Dead Poet Society. Normally, every production company uh, 
has a certain lane, you know, that they work under. With Thomas, their lane was more broad comedy, I would say. Yeah, correct? absolutely. Very absolutely. broad with soap and things like that, correct? Yep. And and when they did the film Dead Poet Society, I was stunned because here was a movie that was totally a different thing and they never done a movie before and here they even made that successful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, interesting fact, when I was there, which is 25 years ago, I read a script called The Gardener, which last year Paul Witt got made as um, A Better Life. It got uh, some really good press, a nice movie, but that's the, that's the movie business for you, 25 years in development. Wow. All right, so you're, you're getting coffee and making copies with Thomas, <laughs> and, uh, with Thomas Harris, yeah. and then what? How do you move up? You know, I there. You know, Tony was a great guy, and I was kind of Tony's personal valet, and so I would drive him around town. Um, and uh, now, this is the thing about being a PA that's weird: is that technically speaking, in our business, you're supposed to do things that are related to the business. <laughs> But as Steve will tell you, uh, a great percentage of the things he did there probably were not related to any business. No, no. It was like, you know, go to Balloon Lagoon, get, you know, a dozen <laughs> balloons for, you know, Katie's birthday, and then, you know, bring them over here. Balloon you know, Lagoon. And occasionally you would be on the set and, you know, you would get some, you know, remedial kind of training of like cleaning up the craft service table or something like that. But yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was, a, it, it was a lot of fun, though. I mean, you know, you're young, you're in jeans and a T-shirt, and, uh, you know, it's your first entry into the business, and they had a lot going on. And uh, so I had a lot of fun with it. It was, it was really cool. But then I started reading scripts for Tony um, because <laughs> as much as I love Tony, he was the kind of guy, like, I would drive him everywhere he would go in his car, but I would drive him to a movie screening and Rather than say, like, listen, I'll be back in, you know, three hours, so you can just be back in three hours, he'd be like, wait here. <laughs> and so I'd be out in the parking lot in Burbank, and I was like, I got to do something. So I just asked him if I could read scripts and uh, start reading his scripts, and then one thing led to another. He put me in his development department, and that was my first real gig, you know. But one thing led to another because you asked him. Yes. Could you read scripts? You yeah. took the initiative. Yeah. When no other intern or any other PA was doing it, you're reading the scripts, and chances are, when you felt comfortable enough, you gave him your opinion on those scripts. No, that was the whole thing: is that you know you, and, you tried to edge in your your thoughts and hope that they you know they were what he, he was hoping for. So, did you ever read anything that ended up getting on the air? Oh, that, sure. And I'm talking at that point in time. Yeah, pilots, you know, that got on the air. There was nothing that came through at that point that. Um, you know, became a Golden Girls or a soap or something like that. But So then you move up in their department, you're in the development department, which means you're taking meetings, you're trying to get people in that are going to pitch, and your whole goal as a development executive, for those in our audience that don't know, honestly, your goal is to get something that you have your fingerprints on on the air. Yeah, Because exactly. if you can do that, then you win. Part of the thing about Walter Newman, who was here, who was an assistant of Comedy Central, you know, it's it's tough, especially at a place like Comedy Central. There's not a lot of real estate to get shows on, and if there's 10 executives in the office there, chances are all 10 aren't going to get shit on the air. 
And so you're relying on people if you're an assistant to bring stuff or whatever, and you don't know what's going to happen. And one of the things that he did what was fascinating when he found mail order comedy, instead of putting the disc just on the person's desk who he was at, he made copies and put them on everybody's desk. Smart, smart. So he had his fingerprints on that particular thing if it went. Yeah. And when it became workaholics, then, then it began, obviously he yeah. got offers to do other things everywhere. Now he's an adult swim running comedy development. But, <laughs> That's awesome. But so you're in development. So you're, you, there's a lot of development people there too. Not a yeah. lot, but there's a significant amount. Um, I believe uh, Peter Aronson was yeah, there Peter at Aronson the time. Was there. Running de- he was in development too at the time yeah. with you. Mitch Hurwitz was uh, just starting his writing career, and as Mitch, was Mark Cherry. And Mitch Hurwitz, of course, Arrested Development, uh, won an Emmy for that best show. And Mark Cherry, also Emmy Award yeah. winner for Desperate Housewives relationships which we're going to talk about huge and huge. so you're running you're in development tell me some something that happened that that got you to the next level um you know i got i started to get noticed as as really understanding material um that was really my theater background i think and uh and pete aronson was actually my boss for a little while and he was great at guiding giving me a lot of exposure um but during that time i met uh, a guy named dan mcdermott who has become a writer but was a, an executive for many, many years. And he was over at Fox, and he was running current programming there back when Chernin was the president of the network. Peter Chernin. Yeah, Peter Chernin, sorry. Um, you know, Jamie Kellner was still there. Um, and uh, Dan had, and I had met socially through Kevin, and uh, he knew that I was kind of looking to move up. And out of the blue, right at the beginning of season, he one of his executives blew out can't remember why and uh he called me and he said i've got a job can you start on monday <laughs> and it was you know like thank god yeah absolutely and this was at uh this was at fox broadcast now yeah. now and i became a manager of current programming now what's interesting is you had to have done something to merit being offered that job besides the relationship so there had to be something that was happening there where you were recognize just not just understanding material but you you hadn't aligned yourself with anything at with thomas harris that actually had gotten on the air at that point in time. right right so how do you think you moved up knowing that you didn't technically accomplish the goal that you set out for as a development executive at with thomas harris part of it i think was that because i had spent like five years almost five years on wall street I was actually, you know, four to five years older than most of the people in the job I was in. And so, you know, the current programming a lot is about managing relationships and being an adult and being the conduit to the different departments. So I think, you know, Dan ran me through the ringer in terms of understanding material and understanding how shows ran. And I had a good basis for that from Whit Thomas. Um, but I think, honestly, one of the things that appealed to him was that he was getting a more seasoned individual who had spent a more time in the business world, um, albeit on Wall Street, and then had this creative background as well. Um, that was really the reason that I got that that early gig. So you get the Fox in the early 2000s, or is it in the late 1990s? Late, late 90s, yeah. And so the, the shows that are there at that time, is that when Doug Herzog spent a year and a half there? Or is no, that-, that was way after, actually. I was there well before that. Got the it. big show, I, I covered the Ben Stiller show. 
Got it. Which was fantastic. Which was nominated or either won an Emmy, it right? It won the Emmy after it had been canceled. It was a sketch show. Yeah. I remember it vividly. It was Judd Apatow was running it. It had Andy Dick, yes. uh, Bob Odenkirk. Um, um, it was an amazing show, but it, was, it, it was just a never got show. traction. And, and then Martin Lawrence. A Martin Lawrence remember show. Remember right. the Martin show, yeah. One thing that I remember about the Ben Stiller show, uh, which will be shocking to the audience, is Andy Dick. Ben had hired Andy. He had no experience. He had never done really anything. But a lot of people hadn't. But And Andy was always a troubled guy. But when the red light went on in the camera, I mean, a genius. Oh, he was brilliant. He was brilliant. A, a genius. Because he had no boundaries in life. So. No fear, no boundaries. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it was fantastic. I ended up working with him years later on news radio. Yeah. Uh, and he was still a troubled guy, but still one of the funniest guys when the camera rolled. Again, relationships. Yeah. Yep. All right. So you're at Fox. Uh, tell me what happens there that moves the needle that gets you to the next level. Um, I think, you know, I had a, a relationship that started there with uh, Amy Adelson and Brandon Stoddard, um, who had a, a show that was uh, in development and never made it to the air. But I started working with them and they were at ABC Productions before Disney bought ABC. So it was ABC Cap Cities. Yeah. And for those of you who don't know, every network uh, has their own production company. Um, and so the goal is to develop shows through that production company, get them on the network. And there's an incredible savings. And also in syndication, you align yourself to the point where all the money comes into the particular coffers of that uh, network and that corporation. There's only, I believe, very few companies who are not aligned with the networks who do television series at this moment. One of them is the group that you're aligned with now, Lionsgate. One is Sony. And there's, I mean, you can name them on half a hand. Yeah, they're smaller. Yeah, and so because, and those companies have to self-finance things. So when Sony does a pilot for, let's say, let's say Steve decides that he wants to do a, a show with Sony, and the drama pilot cost eight million dollars, it's you know, hey, you want to do the pilot? Spend the eight million dollars. Mm -hmm. And so it's a really fascinating situation there so but that's why a lot of networks have their things what's even more crazy is when a network has their production company and the network passes on their show and then they <laughs> go to another network and it goes at the other network yeah which oh. gets a little bit awkward but let's keep going with let's <laughs> that's keep happened so many times yeah. too i mean um but so so i i had drummed up a relationship and and honestly you know judd apto and ben stiller uh, were huge advocates for me. And then Chris Albrecht, I did a show with him called Down the Shore. Who's now the president of Stars and the former president of HBO. He's yeah. on the podcast. And he was just starting um, HBO Independent Productions, which is HIP. Um, which did Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah, exactly. And um, and so, you know, I had these kind of industry, established industry stars to some extent who really, you know, started to help me and talk about me and make the calls if I needed them. And they got me into with Brandon and Amy. And um, after uh, about two years at Fox, I moved to uh, ABC Productions as uh, their head of just drama to start and then moved up uh, to eventually run 
all of development just at the moment when Disney bought ABC. Which, which, <laughs> we went out of business. Which we're going to talk about for a second. But, but getting back, this is another thing that's interesting about your career, which is to me fascinating, is that you spend two years at Fox. You really can't point to anything that you had your fingerprints on that went on the air and went the distance. Yep. So here's another gig where you spend another two years. It could be argued that on paper you didn't get the job done the way you wanted to get it mm -hmm. done, which was to get a show on the air that was a hit. Right. So you, yet you move up again. Well, in so you're, a navigator, though, you're yeah. a navigator in these relationships, and people love you, and they, they realize you have it's almost like It's almost like in baseball when you have like an amazing defensive player, like the best defensive player yeah. in the game, but he's probably hitting like 250. You still want him in the lineup every day. Total. And, you know, the, the, the frustrating thing about current programming is that you don't choose it. You know, they just come at the end of the day and go, here are the three shows that we're going to bet all our money on. And then you're involved in it, which is great training. And it's kind of like an MBA of television. But it's, you know, you want to eventually get into either the position where you're the one selling the stuff or you're the one buying the stuff. Could you just explain to our audience what a current executive is? Because there's, there's two kinds of current executives in my mind. There's the kind of current network executive who you get there and you're hired and you're like, you're the current executive. All oh, right, this is exciting. What's my job? Uh, you just show up uh, to the table reads and to the note sessions and just just put your you say a few things like, hey, there should be a black character instead of a white character on that show and have Chappelle uh, run off in the distance. No, no, but you just you're you're commenting, you're making notes on shows, and you're there and you're that person listening and after the talking with the executives. But then there's another kind of current executives that sort of oversees the whole thing for those current executives. Were you, which one were you? Well, you know, I think a good current executive is you're the conduit between the show and the network and all the elements of the network. So PR, you know, development, current, um, finance, uh, production, programming, scheduling, et cetera. And you're really just providing the communication and navigating that for both sides so that everything gets taken care of. To me, you know, the first kind that you mentioned that feels compelled that they're going to give the note that's going to save the script. I've never been a believer in that. I mean, I'm a believer in you hire talent to do their jobs. And if they do it well, you never have to go down to the set. If they do it poorly, even if you went down to the set all the time, it's still going to suck. I wonder how many current executives are on The Simpsons. <laughs> zero. Probably. Anyway, now I said zero, and there's probably somebody saying, no, I am there every day. Mad Groening <laughs> believes in me and takes all my notes. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success.
to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. So uh, you get the ABC, you're, you're head of drama development, and then there's the announcement that Disney has purchased ABC and the production company. Now, this, is, this was a fascinating time, and for those of you who are listening who weren't really paying attention during that time, this was mind-boggling to me because just one day, this is before really, um, I'd say before the internet really took off, and all you had here in town were the trades. You had your Hollywood Reporter and you had your uh, Variety, and that's what you had. And they came and you got to the office, and even if you got to the office at 7 in the morning, they were there. And you would sit at your desk with your coffee or tea and read them and, uh, and with, with your muffin or whatever. And this was an amazing day because I can't imagine in our day and age, because a negotiation for just... Just think of your doing a negotiation for your contract at one of your jobs. At the least amount of time, it takes three months to do. And somebody finds out about it, no matter what. This Disney-ABC merger, it's like the announcement was on the front page of the trades, and, and not one person leaked it, not one person knew. And it, it couldn't have been three months. It had to have been going on like a year Oh, at least a year. How I, is it possible that not one person in the process leaked it to the press? It's just such a different time. I mean, I don't think the press was as focused on entertainment in those days in the same way that they are now, where, you know, gossip columns have become the absolute go-to for every kind of news. I mean, it's amazing to me. You know, and, and at that point, also, the interesting thing was, you know, all the stories were about them buying ABC when, in fact, they bought ABC and ESPN. And ESPN has turned out to be by far the much better purchase. I mean, by 25-fold at least. So you're there. You're the, you're the guy, uh, development of drama. What happens when ABC – because normally when somebody takes over, this is another thing that happens if you're an executive. That's when you can really tell when in any company in the world – if somebody takes over, they normally clear the decks of a lot of executives. Just clear the decks. But if you want to find out who the really great, extraordinary executives are in your business, find the company that cleared the decks and then look and see who's still there from the original <laughs> group. That, and that's the person that you got to look at and say they're doing something special. And every company there is in this town or everywhere has one that's like that like even even though it's like head of casting and things like that gene blythe at disney and abc was a guy he'd been through like literally like 10 regimes completely and he still was there because he was a guy that you knew he made you feel safe and you knew that if he told you that this guy is the guy even if you're the president and you're thinking because when just for you actors who are listening when you're going on a test for a show, what happens is you're testing and you're in that room. And if you were testing during the days of ABC dramas or comedy and Steve was there, 
he was in that room. And what happens when you leave that room, every studio executive, every young development executive, every casting director, when you leave that room and the door closes, they all turn around to Steve like it's E.F. Hutton, (laughs) and they ask his opinion. But I will bet that when Gene Blythe was in the room with you and he asked your opinion, Gene Blythe had an opinion, and it was a very valuable opinion. Well, you know, Gene would sit right next to me. I'd make him sit right next to me in those (laughs) things because, no, absolutely. That process, by the way, is completely antiquated and broken because you're sitting there in this awkward room (laughs) with a bunch of executives. It's cold. It's, you know, you can't really, you can't be funny. You can't really be dramatic. You know, they should go to screen tests much more. But, no, the door would close, and I would turn to Gene get his take on, you know, all the people we'd seen, maybe get a take of a few more people, you know, usually if the showrunners are there, get their take and who their favorites were. And, you know, most of the time everybody agreed. There were, there were definitely times when, you know, there were, there are those famous times where, you know, there's three people who come in and one is obviously just terrible. They're like, (laughs) you know, Barry's not the guy, you know, and then, (laughs) The door closes and you go, so what do you guys think? Well, Barry, he's, we love Barry, you know, and like, everyone's like, really? That's, you know, but most of the time it's good. But Gene Blythe, I mean, that's a great example of a guy who just, you know, did his job. There was, there was nothing Hollywood about Gene, all about relationships, all about the, the talent. And, and he loved the talent. He loved actors and he loved that whole medium and just one of the great guys. I talked to him recently, you know, he's, he has a horse farm out in, deep in the valley you were one of those guys that people it didn't matter even if the prevailing factor was for gene oh god you know he was aligned with those guys <sighs> I, I maybe there's somebody who's equal to him but when you can't find somebody that's the equal you're like Fuck it you know i'm going this way and that's what people always did with you and so so you, the change happened a lot of people Got their walking papers. Yeah, a lot of people got their walking papers. But you didn't. Why? I didn't. I, You know, they were still trying to figure out what they were going to do with the production company. And honestly, in the end, it it never really worked out for ABC Productions. They ended up kind of taking the whole thing down. um, And I moved on to NBC at that point. But, you know, in those days, nobody, you know, there were not in-house studios. That was the first of its kind. And so... You know, Disney buying a network was the first crazy conglomerate where you had, oh, wait a second, you've got a studio owning a network. What's that going to be? And so I think, you know, there was a comfort level in the, in the fact I had done my so-called life and the commish, which, you know, was on for many years. And so I think they felt like, OK, you know, for right now, he's a great placeholder. And then, you know, we'll see how this works out. And in the end, as I say, they ended up uh, shutting the whole thing down. Um, Brian McAndrews, I remember, was the head of it uh, when they shut it down, and he's now the CEO of uh, Pandora. That's right. All right, so then you go to NBC for how long? Uh, I was at NBC for about uh, about four years. What happens there? That was like a golden ride at, at, at NBC, you know, because it was, the, it was when NBC had been down, and then, you know, Warren and... Um, Warren Littlefield. Warren, sorry, Warren Littlefield and... Uh, and his team at, you know, that I became a part of, uh, literally, you know, was one hit after the another. It was ER, Friends, Seinfeld, um, Will and Grace, um, and News Radio, all that stuff. Um, Third Rock from the Sun, 
uh, and they were, you know, they went from from fourth place to first place, um, kind of overnight, and then stayed there uh, for almost the entire time I was there. That'll be a familiar tune that we're going to talk about soon. <laughs> and so you're aligned with that, and you're, you know, show me who you're with, and I'll show you who I am. So yeah. you're like a winner. Yeah, it was, and it was such a great time. I mean, there was such an energy around TV at that point because, you know, it was like the, the Friends cast was on the cover of, of Rolling Stone and, um, you know, Third Rock was winning all these Emmys and ER, you know, was unstoppable in the ratings. And it was just a really fun time to be around a network that was clicking on all cylinders. And what was your highest position there and who was uh, in, in terms of that? My highest position there was, uh, I think I was a senior vice president, um, uh, in at at that point, they decided to combine current and development, so that you would cover a show as a current executive that you had been a part of developing. Um, so, like I covered Just Shoot Me, which you know, talk about relationships, ends up being Steve Levitan. Um, we developed that with him and Brillstein Gray, and then years later, uh, you know, end up working on Modern Family with relationships. Him. Completely, it's huge. So, how do you get back to ABC and Disney? Um, I ended up um, when uh, when the they they made a big change. Uh, Joe Roth made a big change over at Disney um, before they had merged. Disney was still a separate unit at ABC, um, and there was Touchstone Television, Walt Disney Network Television, and Buena Vista Productions, and they were these three television studios that were all housed under Joe, and they were all kind of doing disparate things. And he hired Lloyd Braun to come in and bring them all together into Touchstone Television. Uh, and Lloyd kind of cleaned house over there. And I came in uh, to under Lloyd as his number two to, you know, make that that three some into one studio. And again, these are these are fascinating uh, conversations that are going to happen uh, now <laughs> about this because. It's a great thing, you know, when you bring when you're number one and you bring in a number two, it's a, it's an amazing situation when you do it. But there is risks when you do that uh, and how your relationships are and how people with nicer suits and bigger offices and board members and things like that and how they evaluate the performance of the people involved in those situations. Oh, completely. So you're the number two guy. Take me through what starts happening, and you eventually become uh, a co, I believe, co uh, president or something with Lloyd. Uh, at no, at I never was co with Lloyd. So it was pretty. Lloyd and I spent like three years where I was his number two, and frankly, the first year I think we had like fourteen pilots, and nothing went. <laughs> It was like the and ABC worst. was at what level? What number of the four big four? They were they were in the middle. They were going from second to third. They were by they definitely weren't the fourth network, but you know they had the end of home improvement. So fourteen pilots, nothing. Zippo. Basically, we got like one like you know charity mid season pickup, I believe. So basically, you got one more thing on the air than a dead guy. Yes, exactly. Again, yeah. again, this is what's so this is <laughs> what's so fascinating yeah. about sitting across from yeah. you. Yeah. Up to this point, you're not exactly. It could be argued that you're not exactly, you know, Hank Aaron. Right. 
but people love you. You're brilliant. You have a way with talent. You have a way with executives. Something tells them you have a way with the navigation. And sometimes people who get a little more lucky and get a little more things going get the shit kicked out of them in favor of people who are great with relationships. And I think all you needed, and you knew in your mind that all you needed was the right opportunity. And once you got the right opportunity, you would have hit after hit. You knew that in your mind, correct? Yeah, I felt it in my gut. I mean, you know, you, you want to get into that position where your decisions are really impactful. Now, not that you want to admit to this, but we <laughs> talked about this a little earlier. But again, what is hard to understand when you're at the top of the heap or wherever you are is that the people underneath you, they have goals for themselves. And sitting across from Steve McPherson, my feeling is that his goal in life was not to be number two to anybody. <laughs> Definitely. I'm a competitive guy, and I so think his, you always want to be number one. You always want to be the decision maker. So you're, so you're there, and you, you know, you're brought in by people who bring you in to be the number two person, and they know if they're smart and they know the way the world works, they're bringing you in knowing that you want to be number one but they're number one. Right. And well, so and it's I'm a weird also, thing. I'm also, you know, I'm a very straight shooter. I'm, you know, I'm not very Hollywood. I'm not very politic. Yeah, but you didn't walk in and sit down the, with Lloyd Braun and Stu Bloomberg and say, hey, guys, uh, listen, before I sign the paperwork here, I just want to let you know that uh, I'm going to be, I want your job. And, and uh, I just want you to know that. And it's going to happen. I'm right. going to have your job. No, I never had that conversation. So, no, of course you didn't. <laughs> because, you know, it doesn't matter how non-Hollywood you are. Because if you had that conversation, you're not getting the gig. <laughs> right, right. Unless they're completely confident in what they do. You know, if you have that, if you're LeBron James and a new basketball player comes on, right. he says, hey, I'm going to be taking your spot. You're like, okay, nice talking to you. <laughs> um, you know, Royce Clayton, yeah. who was the, uh, said when he was a young child that he was going to take over Ozzie Smith's position in St. Louis, and he did. That's, um, that's so, cool. But, but it's very rare. Yeah. Anyway, so take me through that, that transition there. Well, uh, it's interesting because, again, it's an ironic transition that the, the first show that I did that I can really put my finger on that had impact was CSI. And uh, we developed it with Jerry Bruckheimer and Jonathan Littman at the time, who nobody who knew who Jonathan Littman was, except I had worked with him as a current executive at Fox, again, relationships. And he had this show, the CAA found this guy, Anthony Zyker, unknown out of Vegas, had written one pilot script, I think, a uh, feature maybe. Um, they brought him in to pitch to me. And I don't know if you've ever met Anthony, but he's the most dynamic pitcher there is. I mean, can't sit down he gets up he does a thing and i'm like this is going to be fantastic because bruckheimer actually at that point had, had been killing it in features but had no tv um and he had hired uh jonathan to get tv going and it wasn't kind of clicking and they came in with anthony zyker and i'm like this guy's amazing this is going to be just an awesome show we take it into abc pass <laughs> and we, we walked out and and i mean caa will will back me up on this i was so pissed that they had passed on this because we were their in-house studio. And there was this, there was this unfortunate kind of rivalry between the two, I think still in those days. And that exists today. At a and lot the executives of the past were Lloyd and Stu. Lloyd, Stu. Um, and uh, you know, it was Tom Sherman, who's a great guy mm -hmm. over at CW now, 
Jamie Tarsus was under uh, mm-hmm. them. It was before she had exited. But she wasn't there. the decision maker. Those two were the decision makers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so now, uh, again, just so our audience knows, the landscape is littered with shows that have been passed on that have been, you know, NBC passed on Roseanne. ABC did Roseanne. ABC passed on Cosby. NBC did Cosby. Exactly. And Steve, if he shares with it before the end of this podcast, uh, will probably tell you in the biggest disappointment section of a show probably that he passed on that became a juggernaut hit. So Completely. Was so, it there was Zanuck or one of the huge famous guys said, if I had passed on everything I picked up on picked up and picked up everything I passed on. I would have done about the same. <laughs> <laughs> and I always love that because it's true. I mean, you know, you do your best, but. But they knows? probably passed on that project because, again, there's somebody pitching it who's never done anything in his yeah. life. Yeah. It, it, unknown. Bruckheimer had not really been successful in TV. And so it was it was definitely a risk. And, you know, I can say if I was on the other side, maybe I would have passed, too. But um, we took it over to CBS and, you know, the rest is history. It became probably the biggest franchise in television history. And who were the executives who bought it at CBS? That was Les involved at the time? Yeah, Les, Les and, and Nina Tassler. Nina Tassler. Yeah, who's still there. You know, I mean, Les is fantastic with relationships. I mean, you look at the team that he has and the people, there's, there's a continuity. He stays with them. He's loyal. They're loyal. It's an amazing, amazing company uh, because no, of Les. No, no doubt because of the consistency yeah. and, again, relationships. So... But the big thing on CSI was not only did it go to CBS, but then the powers that be, Bob Iger at, uh, at Disney, started saying, well, Jerry Bruckheimer is going to run over budget, and it's a show for another network, and we shouldn't do this. And so Lloyd, in one meeting, trying, I think, to just kind of rattle everyone, said, let's just give it away, not expecting that they really would, and they did. And they gave their 50% away to Atlantic Alliance. Oh. Um, and Atlantic Alliance, you know, sold a few years ago for billions of dollars and 99% of that was CSI. So not only had they passed on the show, but then they gave away ownership of it. Oh and so what the irony is then, so there I am, right? And I'm like, I'm somewhat, I can put my finger on this giant hit, but it's like the bane of their existence because it's now <laughs> going on to kill their network ratings wise and to make billions of dollars for other people that they could have had 50% of. Um, and so it was kind of a, it was a, it was a weird time. Will you explain to our audience what happens in the hallways of any company when e- opportunity is there you're in a situation where it's all there for you there's there's it's it's on a silver platter and you made a decision as a company to not only let the show go but to let your interest in it go how do these executives walk through the hallway the minute CSI goes to number one in the ratings how do they are there conversations? Do people talk or do their heads just down or do they get like, how do people morale wise deal with that? You know what? For, for me and my team, it was devastating, you know, um, because you work so hard to, you know, find this needle in a haystack. And when you do, it's an unbelievable thing. Honestly, though, (laughs) I think if you look at a lot of great executives, uh, they're, 
Teflon. They somehow have a way of navigating through all this stuff. And for years, you know, the strap planning department at Disney would tell me that, no, it was still a good decision that, you know, CSI was, you know, it was good that we gave it away. And, you know, the deficit was too high. I mean, people, people, you know, it, this is Hollywood. You know, if there's a success, everybody stands up. And if there's a huge failure or a giant mistake like that, people, they walk away and they point fingers. And, and that's really what happened. And so we hear that's fascinating is the foundation of your beginnings. The first thing that you identify that really is a huge success is something that you don't get to be any part of. It, exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, it was, it was really a tough thing. But you know what happens then? That next thing you bring in, they listen. Yeah. No, you know, it, it definitely, it helps with that. Um, but surprisingly enough, the next thing that I brought in almost immediately after that was Amazing Race, which they also passed on, but they kept ownership in at least. So we put it on CBS and, you know, it's still on the air today, but, but they kept ownership. At least they didn't give away the ownership the way they did with the... Uh, and who was CSA. the reality executive in charge at ABC at that particular time that passed on Amazing Race? I don't even know. It's still Lloyd was the decision maker, you know, so... So these things uh, take their toll. Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. It, it was a, it, that was really a, a, it was a lesson, I guess. And it was just like trial by fire. Um, but it was unbelievably frustrating for me. So how do you move up? You know, how I, do you get to be the president and chairman? It was really that when, that, when all these things aren't going your way, you know, I credit two people with that. Um, one is Michael Eisner who, um, you know, took a liking to me, um, you know, Michael, uh, you know, even with the CSI situation, Michael looked at that as a, my strength because he heard me in meetings say we shouldn't give this up. And then they did. And, you know, for him, yes, that was a big thing, but he's got bigger fish to fry. He really took a liking to me and was very supportive of me at the studio and, and, and what I was trying to do. Um, and when, um, when I ended up, um, well, then, what happened was they were going to make a big change at ABC. They fired the executives there. At that point, Stu was already gone. They fired Lloyd and uh, Susan Line, and they were looking for a new person. And, and I'd been passed over many times for that gig because I didn't really get along with Lloyd. Um, and, you know, I, I was, again, I was not the kind of Teflon guy I was you know said what I uh, I felt and that rubbed people the wrong way sometimes and normally they bring people in from the outside somebody who's successful in another company you don't want the guy in your company normally who's seen all these defeats and bone crushing yeah. situations but of course your relationships <laughs> and the way you navigated no and and there was a guy named Alex Wallow who was there um he was uh, actually president of the network um, at the time, and they actually replaced him at the same time too. He, although he stayed on, they replaced him with Ann Sweeney. Um, but he was really instrumental um, in talking with Michael and Bob uh, at that point, uh, and saying I was the best guy for the job, and that they should, you know, take a shot on me. And and they ended up doing it like three weeks before Upfronts that year. And you had to go to Upfronts and make the speech. And for those of you who don't know, at the Upfronts, these are these happen. Um, during May when all the pilots and are picked up and for series and you invite and wine and dine all the people who are the sponsors and all the people who spend the money on the advertising 
and you need to give a presentation to convince them why they should spend money with your network and how you're on the rise and how all your shows are the... You have to pretend sometimes that things are better than they are. It's all on the come, and you're showing them these trailers. It, you know, you don't know that whether the show is good or bad, and you have to do it. I mean, I was fortunate because I had started developing um, Desperate Housewives and Lost and Grey's Anatomy at the studio. So then I became the president of the network and you know picked those shows up. And for that first, so three weeks later, season. those were the ones that were going on the air. Those were, yes, there were other ones, but but Lost, um, Lost, Desperate Housewives were on the fall schedule, and then we put uh, Grey's Anatomy on the mid-season because it needed some work and the pilot needed to be redone. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. Cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.